0: The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.
1: Reading from the book of John, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life.
0: Praise the Lord. How's everybody doing this morning? Amen. So praise God. So we want to talk about what it means... To be born again. All right? And we're going, to, we're going to ask two questions, and those two questions are going to flow out of four ideas. The two questions that we want to ask this morning is, what does it mean to be born twice, and why does it matter? What does it mean to be born twice, and why does it matter? This is the discussion that's being had in John chapter 3, which, by the way, is a continuation of a discussion from John chapter 2. And we spent a great deal of time last week. I would tell you to go back and listen to the message, but we forgot to record it. So if you weren't here, the long and short is, is that we talked about what does fake faith look like. And one of the things that we discussed, fake faith uh, that fake faith seems to take Uh, Take on the nature that it seems to take on is that fake faith is driven more so by the spectacular and by the dazzle and by signs and wonders and not necessarily driven towards transformation. All right, and so what ends up happening, John does this very deliberately, I believe, is that John at the end of chapter two he tells us about this crowd of people that were drawn to Jesus, but Jesus himself. Was not, was not willing to entrust himself to them. In other words, he didn't trust their trust, or he had no faith in their faith, okay? And so because of that, he did not commit himself to them because they only believed in the signs. They didn't necessarily believe him as Savior and Lord enough to lay their own lives down for his sake and for his cause. And so he moves from that to Spending time over the next couple of chapters talking about different people. And these different people actually do end up gaining the trust of Jesus. Jesus entrusts himself to them. Now, in chapter 2, we find out that he didn't entrust himself to this crowd of people. And and the Bible and the Scripture says, says in verse 23 through 25, because he knew their hearts. He knew what was in man. And now we see in chapter three and in chapter four that he does the exact same thing. He knows what's in man, and so because he knows what's in man, he actually gives, he gives an ear to their concerns. The first gentleman is by the name uh, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, the, now the woman. Here's what's crazy about this story that we're going to be uh, these stories that we're going to be covering over the next two weeks. Nicodemus, right, and this woman at the well are radically different from each other radically different from each other for example nicodemus is what we're going to find to be is a man of high morality nicodemus is a is a man of very high moral standards And this woman that we're going to talk about in chapter 4 is a woman of very questionable morality, very questionable moral standards. Nicodemus is a man of high power and high influence. But this woman literally has no power and literally has zero influence in the lives of others. Nicodemus is a man of um, that 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 is raising controversy by making the decision to go and meet Jesus in the middle of the night. He 's a Pharisee, and, the, and Jesus is already beginning to stir the pot with Pharisees. and so Nicodemus really is taking a chance by going and meeting Jesus. But the woman doesn't go and meet Jesus. Jesus goes and meets her and raises a similar controversy because As we'll discuss in a couple of weeks, Jesus really has no business associating, at least according to their standards, the customs of the day, associating with this woman. And so you have all of these different radical differences between between Nicodemus, the Pharisee in chapter 3, and this woman, this immoral woman in chapter 4. You have all these crazy differences between the two, but guess what? They need the same thing. They both need the same thing. They both end up having this discussion with Jesus, and Jesus reduces all of their world's issues and all of their world, their world problems to the same single answer. Does that make sense? And so here's the thing it doesn't matter what background you come from, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter whether you're smart or not so smart. It doesn't matter whether you've went to church your whole life and you have lived an impeccable moral life and it, and, or, or you have never been to church and you have lived what people call ratchet lives. It doesn't matter because we all need the same thing. We all need the exact same thing. And so let's talk this morning about the first guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus again he carries a high standard of morality. He's a pharisee. He's a pharisee, okay? Now, let's 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 think about this for a second. What does it mean to be a pharisee? Well, this is what it means. It means that you are a part of a very religious and conservative group. Very religious very conservative they these folks went above and beyond the letter of the law to prove their righteousness to the world watching oftentimes they added unnecessary weight to the law law is already hard right they they added stuff to the law believe it or not to try to, to try to show themselves as more righteous than the rest. And so his standard of morality probably exceeds every last one of us in this room, all right? None of us are going to out-moral Nicodemus. But neither are any of us going to out, out-moral Educate Nicodemus. His, his theological mind is, is, is very high because obviously not only did the Pharisees have a high standard of morality, but the Pharisees had a high standard for understanding the law. Even though they twisted it in all sorts of different ways, they still spent a great deal of time studying it and looking at every jot and tittle, if you will, every single letter in the law, every single dot, so to speak, and every single crawl. So they studied the law very, very carefully. As a matter of fact, Jesus refers to Nicodemus in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 10, which, which we will we'll read in just a second, as, hey, how are you a teacher or a master of the law? Rabbi of the law. Does that make sense? And so his theological mind was, was extremely, extremely, extremely sharp. But not only that, and sorry, guys, for some reason, my. Laptop locked out. But not only that, he had a high standard of morality. He, or he had a high standard of morality. He had a high educational and theological acumen, but also he had rich influence. Because he was a Pharisee, and we know, that, we know the morality part, we know the theological part, but also the Bible says that he was a ruler of the Jews, right? Which means he carried great power. He carried great sway. That people, when Nicodemus spoke, people listened. But yet Nicodemus finds himself needing something. He sees a man. He recognizes that this man has something. There's something about this man. Even though my morality seems to be sharp and my theological understanding seems to be clear, and even though, I, you know, when I speak, people listen, and they follow, and they move, there's something about this guy that I need, to, I need to dig in. I need to press in. I need to lean in and find out more about him. And so he goes, and the Bible says that he goes in the middle of the night. Now, nobody really knows why he goes in the middle of the night. Some people speculate that the reason he goes in the middle of the night is because his reputation is on the line that as a Pharisee, he really should not be talking to Jesus. And so he goes when all the coast is clear, so to speak, possibly. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus entrusts himself to this man by engaging in conversation with him. He entrusts himself. He actually says, I know what's there, and so I'm going to talk to him. I know what's in this man. I know why he's here. Even though he gave me the same answer that these guys just gave me in chapter 2, this answer about signs, and because the, because the signs are there, hey, should we believe? It's almost the same exact thing that we just heard, and, 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 and it, was the, it was the same thing that caused Jesus to step away. But now he leans in, and we ask why. Why does he lean in in chapter 3 when he stepped away in chapter 2 over the same thing? It's the reason that we talked about last week, because he knows the heart. And so just like he knew what was in those people that caused him to step away, he knows what's in Nicodemus. Even though Nicodemus says the same thing, he knows Nicodemus is looking for more. And so he presses in. And he actually engages in conversation. This looks like cheap faith 101 because we talked about cheap faith last week. This looks exactly the same. However, Jesus sees something deeper and he begins a genuine conversation with, uh, with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is a man who is ignorant of who is in front of him, but genuinely inquiring about who's in front of him because he is genuinely inspired by who's in front of him. In other words, the early direction of the conversation shows us that while Nicodemus may not know who Jesus is quite yet, as we unpack the conversation more, we find that this Pharisee is not the one merely seeking signs or the one seeking to make a mockery of Jesus' work or seeking to trip Jesus up like some of them have done or some of them tried to do. He genuinely wants to know who this man really is. Nicodemus doesn't know exactly who Jesus is and that's why the conversation begins. Who are you is the question he's asking. But Jesus knew exactly who Nicodemus was, which is why the conversation continues. Does that make sense? So Jesus entrusts himself by having a conversation with this man, but Jesus did not trust himself by shifting the conversation to what Nicodemus really needs. So Nicodemus comes, he says, Rabbi, man, all these signs that you're doing, you must be from God. Same thing that they said in chapter 2 that caused Jesus to say, nope, not ready. Now he's leaning in, but he doesn't lean in and entertain that. He immediately jumps to Nicodemus' real need. He skips right over it. Rabbi, you're doing great signs. All right, let's talk about what you really need. And Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me let me share something with you by the way. Jesus is always doing this in our lives. Always. Jesus juking. He's always Jesus juking us. And in other words, we can be on one mission thinking that we're doing one thing and we find ourselves in the middle of something else. Jesus is doing something else in us in that moment for that reason. Does that make sense? All the time. So, in other words, what I mean by that is that how many people start off coming to church saying, "Yeah, well, I heard they were going to have cake after service," and then walk away, and then walk away from that service, getting saved. How many people have? How, how many people have went to church because somebody invites you, like, "Yeah, I guess I'll go," and then all of a sudden, God snatches you in that moment when you go. How many people come to a funeral, for example, to pay their final respects to the deceased and literally meet Jesus there? Does that make sense? Jesus shifting the conversation. I remember going to a school, I remember going to a church play because a buddy of mine asked me to go when I was in 11th grade in high school, and it forever changed my life. And I was not going to meet Jesus. Probably going to meet some girls or something. I mean, it wasn't Jesus, all right? wasn't going to meet Jesus. And when I went, God met me there. Totally shifted the conversation for me. Anybody ever been in one of those shifts? Well, you were, you were there for one reason. God was there for another. So Nicodemus is there. He's like, man, who is this man? This man is awesome. He's a great teacher, apparently, possibly more. He's doing signs. He's doing wonders. I want to know more about him. And Jesus shifts the conversation. He gets directly to what Nicodemus needs. But what he needs is unusual. What he needs is stunning. He says this, remember in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He needs to be born again. Otherwise, listen, he won't see the kingdom. Can't even lay eyes on it without being born again. Let's talk about what the kingdom of God means, because some people think that the kingdom of God is simply heaven. Right? How many people have heard that? That that's what the kingdom of God is. It's heaven. Well, it's heaven and more. It's heaven and more. What does Jesus mean when he says kingdom of God? All the indicators of Scripture point to that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he is speaking to the present and eternal reign of God. Not just simply heaven, but all that is comprised in God's reign. And so what he is telling Nicodemus in this moment is that when you can't, if you aren't born again, you cannot see my reign, nor can you participate in it. Does that make sense? You won't participate in my reign. You won't be a part of my reign unless you're born again. Being a good person isn't enough but it looks like being a new person is. Are you tracking with that? Jesus isn't speaking to one of us when he says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. He's not speaking to some of us. Or, or one of us, one of, one of the slackers like me, he's speaking to a man of high moral pedigree. He's speaking to a man of high re- religious and theological intelligence. He is speaking to a man with high power and high influence. And he says to that man, you won't sniff the kingdom of God unless you're born again. The Pharisees may seem like laughingstocks when we read our Bible. They may seem like buffoons when we read our Bibles with our westernized 21st century eyes. But in the biblical days, the Pharisees were considered or were considered with great regard, high regard, because of their moral standards and because of their their great intellect. They weren't just pushovers. Of course, they were self-righteous. Of course, they were self, self-promoting. self Also, they were definitely self-preserving and political panderers. But they were respected in some cases amongst many people. But it was often, it was often them that was considered a cut above the norm. So Nicodemus is not a slack. And Jesus tells him, you won't see the kingdom unless you're born again. The Pharisees, Nicodemus were, was Jewish himself. He was a Jew. And, the Jew. and the Jewish people believed that based on lineage alone, we would, we would see God. We would be a part of God's family. Does that make sense? We're Abraham's children. And so unless we are doing some of the most gutter things, just utter wickedness, We will see God. We will be with God. We will lay claim to God's kingdom because we are his people. And here Jesus is telling this Jewish man that you will not see the kingdom of God based on your status right now. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? None of us are as moral as Nicodemus. None of us are as smart as Nicodemus. Not sure if anybody's Jewish. Don't think so. I'm not sure if you guys can tell I'm not. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? And by the way, this isn't a matter of opinion. Jesus, Jesus says at the beginning of verse 3, if you got your Bibles, or your phones, he says this, verily, verily, King James Version. New new, new versions may say, truly, truly. Those words mean something to us, and they mean this, that Jesus is saying this is of certain truth. Jesus is saying, I guarantee it. What is he guaranteeing? That no one, no man, no woman will see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So the question is, what does it mean to be born again? Right? (laughs) We we need to know that. We want to know that. If Jesus is saying we can't even sniff his reign, that we'll be on the opposing side of God's reign. Do you know what that means? Anybody, Anybody ever seen a war movie? Anybody ever seen a war movie? Anybody ever seen a king reigning over a people? Anybody ever seen people on the opposing side? Not a good look for them, right? Not a good thing to be on the opposing side of an eternal reign. God's eternal reign, God's kingdom. If you're on the opposing side, it's not a good look. So we need to understand what does it mean to be born again. And that's when Jesus entrusts himself by defining his need. So after after Jesus says you must be born again, Nicodemus says in verse 4 of chapter 3, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, here's the layman's translation of Nicodemus' words to Jesus. Huh? That's the layman's version, right? Like, I don't get it. What are you talking about? Born again? I've never heard this term. Never heard this term, right? Nicodemus wasn't around when 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 Biggie Smalls dropped his album, right? for, for, for for, uh, For the uninitiated, Biggie Smalls dropped an album called Born Again. Nicodemus wasn't around for that. Nicodemus does not understand this term. He doesn't know what he means. It's unique to him. Now, now it's common to us. We've heard it, we've seen it, we read it, for example. First Peter discusses it, first John discusses it. Obviously, John here is saying it in his gospel. So it feels common. When you do a Google search and you see born and you type in born again, the first thing you're gonna see is Christianity. And then after Christianity, you're gonna see Biggie Smalls. No joke. I, I Googled it this week. And then, and then after Biggie Smalls, you're going to see, um, I think, Death Leopard, because they had an avocado Border again, but neither here nor there. The bottom line is, is that this is not a term that Nicodemus is familiar with. And so he says, what, what are you talking about? I don't get this. This is outside of my theological capacity, outside of my religious capacity. This is outside of all of my Pharisaical training and learning and then he further proves how ignorant he is by offering up this ridiculous statement about, okay, so what am I going to do? Jump back in, mom, and then jump back out? That's crazy, right? So, we, so, so he is showing how clueless he is as it relates to this term that you must be born again. But Jesus, in knowing Nicodemus better than Nicodemus knows himself, patiently walks him through the idea. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is patient with the ones who are genuinely seeking to understand and know who he is? How many dumb answers do we probably give Jesus about life's questions? How many dumb responses do we probably give Jesus about life's questions? How many dumb decisions do we make in responding to life's different options? But Jesus is patient with those that are genuinely seeking after him. And so he's patient with Nicodemus. So he patiently responds to the question by describing the new birth from three different angles. The first angle is that he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. New birth as a birth of water and spirit. Now, there's three options that we have to think through, three popular options that have, that have worked their way through church history over the last 2,000 years and have risen to the surface as the three most likely things that Jesus was referring to, all right? The first thing is that Jesus might be referring to uh, Nicodemus, you must be born naturally and you must be born spiritually in order to enter into the kingdom of God, right? Natural birth, water birth. Spiritual birth, spirit birth, water and spirit. And the ideal is that, well, listen, you know, water, placenta, that type of thing, water break, you know, for, for the sisters in the house that, that, that have had babies, water break. So the ideal of water and the ideal of spirit, that means natural, that means spirit. Here's the thing, water breaking, placenta, any of that type of discussion has never hit the ears of Nicodemus. Okay? these are not concepts that are familiar to him all right so the second option that 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 has been tossed around is that maybe this is a maybe this is pointing to baptism the idea of water and spirit right you go into the water, that represents the transformation. Then obviously the spiritual transformation happens beyond the water internally. But the water itself, the baptism, represents, uh, represents, the, or represents to the world that internal and spiritual transformation. So Jesus is saying you must be baptized and regenerated by the Spirit. Here's the problem with that. Nicodemus does not know of that concept baptism has not yet taken off in the same way that you and I, when we read it, we think about it. Yeah, there's a guy in the wilderness baptizing people named John, right? But what we're going to see is that Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't ridicule Nicodemus for not knowing about John, which leads to the third point. He ridicules Nicodemus for something. And the reason he ridicules him is the clue as to what Jesus means when he talks about water and spirit, all right? So let's look at that, John chapter 3. He says... In verse 9, how many people looking at it? Everybody got it? Okay, verse 9. Nicodemus is confused at this point. Jesus has told him about all these different things that born again means. And so Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I don't understand it. I don't get it. What are you talking about, Jesus? In verse 10, he responds, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things? Are you a master of the Old Testament? Are you a rabbi? Are you a learned Pharisee? Have you spent your entire life reading the Old Testament, and you don't know what I'm talking about when I say water and spirit? So there's the clue, right? The clue is that Jesus is pointing him back to the Old Testament and saying, if you've read your Bible, You should know what I'm talking about when I say that you must be born of water and spirit. There's really only one place that the water, the term water and spirit, are united together. And that's in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. This is what it says. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. This is a future prophecy that Ezekiel is making on behalf, on, on, as, as the mouthpiece of God. He's speaking on behalf of God, saying what God is going to do for his people. There's going to come a day when God will do this for his people, and this is what he's going to do. I will also sprinkle clean water, there it is, on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you with, uh, from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new what? Spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to fulfill my statues and carefully observe my ordinances. So what is Jesus talking about in reference to the spirit and water? He's talking about spiritual rebirth and deep soul and heart cleansing. Basically, Jesus is saying, listen, if you are not washed clean by me and you are not regenerated by me putting my spirit in you, you will not see the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? He says so much in the next verse when he says, when he says, that which is flesh is what? That which is born of the flesh is what? That which is born of the spirit is what? This is what he's, this is what he's talking about. The idea that, hey, all of us, that, that everything that we know produces after his own kind, right? Dogs don't have cats. They have dogs. Does that make sense? And cats don't have dogs. They have cats. You can go down the line. I mean, we can play this game all day, right? Squirrels, raccoons, whatever, whatever you want to go down the line and talk about. But they don't have, they don't produce anything else but their own kind. The flesh, those that are made in the flesh, produce after or produce from the flesh. They produce the flesh. And so this is what Jesus is saying, that the children of man cannot be children of God. That God must produce the children of God. What do you, you mean, Brian? Well, the children of man were once the children of God in the Garden of Eden. Adam. You remember that guy? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam, Eve, after a friendly conversation over dinner, Eve has brought a little bit extra, a dessert that Adam hasn't seen before. She says, hey, got some new fruit. Serpent, in the, serpent in, the, in the field said, it's great. You should try it. Adam's like, wait a minute. Did you get that fruit from the tree that God told us? Ah, don't worry about it. Serpent said, it's great. Nothing's happened yet. Why don't you try it? And Adam tries it, and immediately sin enters, right? Now, everything that is produced from that point forward is what? Sinful. Every single thing that's produced from that point forward is sinful, including you and me. And so Jesus says, listen, that cannot enter into the kingdom. So in order, in order for us to be in, enter into the kingdom, those that were born into that sinful state must be what? Born again. And how are they born again? They're born again by the Spirit. And so, what does that mean? That means that the new Adam, that's what the Bible calls him, Jesus, the final Adam, the last Adam, that he comes. And he is not through the lineage of all the others, is he? He's born from the Spirit himself, so that all those that would fall under him, are now spirit born of the spirit, producing what? The spirit. Children of the flesh becoming children of God. So that's what it means to be born again. But then lastly, Jesus talks about the, the, the transcendent work of the spirit. In other words, there's something that the spirit does that just, that's just way above us that we can't capture, we can't calculate, we can't quantify, and it's in John chapter 3, verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And so there's some ideas here. Jesus Jesus, he's already criticized Nicodemus for not understanding the Old Testament shadows, even though he is an Old Testament teacher. And so he points him back to Ezekiel chapter 36. But guess what? Just a chapter over, Ezekiel 37, there's another famous story. And that famous story is the Valley of Dry Bones. Has anybody ever heard that one? The Valley of Dry Bones. What is described in the Valley of Dry Bones? That is dead, dormant, no life whatsoever, right? And Ezekiel has a conversation with God, and God says, Ezekiel, speak to these dry bones, and I'm gonna breathe. And as the wind passes over these dry bones, they're going to be made alive. Because the wind is gonna be my spirit resurrecting and giving life. To these dry bones. Now, these dry bones aren't gonna be resurrected because they've made the decision to be resurrected. They're not gonna resurrect themselves. These dry bones are gonna be resurrected because I'm going to breathe on them and give them life. John has already pointed us to this reality in the first chapter that we read in, in the Gospel of John when he says, But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. You are born again, not simply because you wanted to be born again. You are born again because God breathed life on you. He breathed. On you, He says, where's the wind coming from? I don't know. That's the way the spirit works. He breathes. So what does it mean to be born again? It means to be born after your own kind, spirit and spirit, right? It means to be regenerated, washed, cleansed, and renewed by the spirit. It means to be breathed on by God. Breathe on with his very spirit over you. In other words, being born again means total and complete transformation. Old man becoming new man. Old woman becoming new woman. And he says, Nicodemus, if that doesn't happen, you don't see the kingdom. Does that make sense? Doesn't matter that you were raised Jewish. Doesn't matter that you know all these theological facts. Doesn't matter that you've lived a good life and you've helped a lot of people. Doesn't matter. What matters is have you been born again? Is that making sense this morning? And so this and so this is what this is what he does from there. Jesus, after entrusting himself by defining his need and entrusting himself by shifting the conversation to get to his need, Jesus entrusts himself to this man by pointing to himself. He says in the last verses, the last passage, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Chapter 3, verse 12 continues, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except, the, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so he says listen there's only one there's only one there's only one that has been in the place that all of us are trying to get to and descend to it back down And then he gives this story about Moses again talking to a guy that knows the old testament right and so when he says, just like Moses, just like the serpent was lifted up, so must the son of man. Nicodemus should, the, the light bulb should go on for Nicodemus, and he should immediately think about the passage in Numbers. Anybody ever read that story before? All right. In Numbers, let's look there at the, as we close this morning. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Verse 4 through 9, he says this, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this Wretched food. Never mind that they probably were barely even eaten before when they were in Egypt. You know, people get crazy when they start complaining, right? They, they don't even think about the fact of what they had before. So we hate this food. Does it make sense? That's like some of us, right? We start, we start eating a few steaks. All of a sudden, hot dogs are too good for us, right? We can't eat hot dogs anymore. But we start getting picky about hot dogs. So now these people have been out of slavery for a little while. They're starting to gripe. They're starting to complain. Now they hate the food. So God says, all right, you don't like the food? Okay, fine. Poisonous snakes for everybody. That's what God says. (laughs) Seriously, seriously, read it. There it is. That's what he says. "Then, Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. You don't like the food? All right. Y'all will think about that the next time you're at Waffle House, right? Get ready to complain about your waffle. You'll think about that. Poisonous snakes come through and eat every and, and start biting on people, killing people, because even though they've been delivered, they continue to gripe, they continue to murmur, they continue to complain. God says enough is enough. So the sin and rebellion of the people has put them in a state of death. And then verse seven reads, the people then came to Moses and said, listen, man, the food is not that bad, right? The food is not that bad. We we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who is bidden looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bidden and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. So Jesus says this, that your sin has driven you far away from me. Your sin, the serpent, has led you. Far away from my kingdom. There's no entrance for you. There is no salvation for you. There is only death through the pangs, and the fangs rather, or pangs, of the serpent. Through his venomous bite, we have all been stung with the curse of sin. And it begets sin because of Adam and his, his bedeviling at the hands of the serpent. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. all the way to Brian Crawford and Corey DeAmport and all the other folks in this room. Sin begets sin, all the way down to us. And none of us can get into the kingdom. We're all running around like mad people as the serpents continue to bite and nip at our heels and poison us all the more. But Jesus says, Jesus says, like Moses lifted up the serpent, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up. And where's he talking about being lifted up? Anybody got any ideas? On the cross. If I be lifted up, then all those that are facing death, if they look upon me, if they put their eyes, the eyes of their faith on me, then they shall be saved. Does that make sense? How are we born again? We're born again. By placing our eyes, the eyes of our faith, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. What happens when we're born again? The Spirit of God comes and cleanses us with the water. The Spirit of God comes and abides in us and breathes new life on dead and dry bones. And we are made alive in God. And it all happens through the one that's lifted up. If you have not set your eyes on the Savior, you say, well, how do I know? How do I know? Well, because his life is in you. His life is in you. His spirit is in you, pulling you and snatching you away from those things. That old life is tugging at you, It's nipping at you. You can't do it anymore. And even when you do it, it's still pulling at you. It's not allowing you to just kind of rest easy in a life of sin. It's pulling. It's tugging at you. How How do I know I'm in him? I find joy in him. I find delight in him. That if somebody mentions Jesus to me, I'm not trying to change the subject. Because his spirit is in me now. And it yearns for him. So if that's not you, it's really easy. Fix the eyes of your faith on Jesus Christ. And you, just like so many in this room, will have entrance into God's present and eternal reign on heaven, on earth, and in all of the universe. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We ask that you would speak to us by your word. Make clear, Lord God, your holy word. Father, drive us towards you and drive us farther and farther away from the serpent who seeks to tempt, who seeks to destroy, seeks to poison us with sin who seeks to snatch as many as he possibly can into the pits of death and away from the fountains of eternal life. Father, we thank you that through you we have have the privilege and opportunity to be born again. Father, may those who do not know you, Father, may they turn to you and may they be born again. And may we all, Lord God, find entrance into your eternal and present reign. These things we act and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.